Hello everyone. Welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This episode features an extensive discussion about sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Alison Phipps. Alison is a professor of gender studies at the University of Sussex and she is also a writer. She's researched sexual violence on university campuses extensively. and that is where her research into lad culture comes from lad culture is well i'll let alison tell you exactly what it is if you're not familiar with it and um we'll also be talking about her new book she's got a new book coming out early next year it's called me not you the trouble with mainstream feminism so i'll be talking about political whiteness of me too with alison again i'll let her tell you what pol- what she means by political whiteness and um one thing that is relevant to a conversation is intersectionality so intersectionality very simply is this understanding of oppression as being related to the different social categories that we all occupy so oppression is said to be an intersection of gender class race religion or um other social categories so the idea is that a solution to this disadvantage to this oppression will also have to take into account the intersectional nature of this oppression so the solution will have to be intersectional as well great okay let's dive in Hi Alison, welcome to Talking Research. Um it's so lovely to have you here and uh just to get started, do you want to start by telling us about yourself? Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really lovely and thank you for your interest in my research and your very very good questions um that you sent me. So, um about me, um I'm a teacher. Uh so I'm professor of gender studies at Sussex University. Um I'm a writer. I define myself as a writer as well as an academic I love to communicate through the written form um mm-hmm. I'm a mum I've got two kids two are 9 and 6 um and in my previous career I was a dancer so um this is a second career for me Wow um yeah I think I heard an interview where you were talking about how you used to be a ballet dancer so that's That's right cool. yeah <laughs> Yeah so how did you get from you know being a ballet dancer to going into researching sexual violence that seems like quite a career switch <laughs> It was really I mean I um I went to university quite soon after I finished my dance training I um just wasn't confident enough to leave home and go abroad by myself I just I wasn't ready so I actually decided to go to university instead um and then did I did my degree and my master's at Manchester I did my PhD at Cambridge and um, between those I I worked as well um so I kind of had breaks between my degrees and then I um I got the job at Sussex after my PhD was finished and um I guess two things really pushed me into researching sexual violence because before I'd been doing um research around women 
in the in education and the workplace so women in science and technology was the subject of my PhD but quite soon after I started the job at Sussex I was running gender studies and I just would get a lot of student disclosures um, so students would come to me and tell me they'd experienced various different things and I at the time I tried to do some research on it at Sussex and was blocked from doing so by um, mm. our pro vice chancellor for research at the time um, which of course made me angry and kind of more determined to do it um, I think the other thing that that got me into it is that I'm a survivor myself so I understand how that feels um, and I had a slightly different experience to perhaps what students have um, my experience was in a, a sort of a small community but I understand what it feels like when something happens to you and people just close ranks and either refuse to believe you or dismiss you or refuse to deal with it hmm. yeah and I want to pick up on what you said about uh, wanting to do research on sexual violence uh, in universities and it just not just not being allowed and uh, you advised on the groundbreaking NUS study Hidden Marks mm-hmm. and um, I want to ask you about Hidden Marks first so what is Hidden Marks and why is it so significant? Okay so Hidden Marks was the first national study of women students experiences of harassment, um, sexual assault and rape um, as well as other things like stalking and financial abuse. Um, it was a survey of just over 2,000 women students um, which found that one in seven of them had experienced a serious physical or sexual assault during their studies um, and that over two-thirds of them had experienced behaviours that could be described as sexual harassment. Um, and I think it was so significant at the time because we didn't really have any baseline data. There was some research that had been done in the 1980s, I think, but nothing until then. So really, when you're dealing with university administrators, one of the main hurdles to to get over is to establish that there is actually a problem. Um, And although Hidden Marks was, um, obviously, people still tried to pull it apart on its methodology. It was a self-selecting study. So it wasn't a representative survey. Um, It wasn't a prevalence study. It was a self-selecting sample. So it's very possible that the numbers in Hidden Marks are slightly higher than they would have been if it had been a prevalence study. Um, What's a self-selecting? So a self-selecting sample is just when you put a request out and say, um, complete, please complete our survey. Um, so with so anybody can fill it in. Um, with hidden marks, it was anybody who was a woman, and that meant anybody who identified as a woman. Um, so that generally means that people who've had those types of experiences are more likely to fill in the survey um, because you would be more likely to want to if you had experienced sexual harassment or abuse. Um, The contrast with a prevalence study, a prevalence study is where you take a sample of, say, 10,000 people or 10,000 students from across a range of different institutions. If you want to be really rigorous, you make it representative in terms of gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation and other categories. And you ask them questions like, has somebody ever touched you without your consent? Has somebody ever um, forced you to have sex with them? And then you get the numbers from that sample. Um, And that is obviously the kind of gold standard of establishing prevalence. So um, Hidden Marks was not a prevalence study, but what it did show us was that this was not... um, it, was, it wasn't a minimal problem 
So even if the numbers are, say, twice as big as they would be um, in a prevalence sample, that's still quite a significant number of students. Um, so if you say one in seven has experienced a serious physical or sexual assault, say that's kind of inflated um, by 50%, you'd still have one in 14, which I, I think is quite a lot. Um, mm. Yeah, so that's the difference. Um, and you were asking about the impact of hidden marks, weren't you, as well? Yes. So actually, at the time, it didn't really have a massive impact. And I don't know why. I think maybe because it was um, it was a statistical survey. So maybe it was um, kind of quite dry. Maybe the time wasn't right. Um, I remember liaising with various journalists asking them to write um, pieces on hidden marks and actually Julie Bindle was the only person that would write a piece on it at the time Um, so Julie Bindle wrote a piece I think in the Guardian about hidden marks and I think it was picked up a little bit but not that much Um, but the impact of hidden marks has actually happened much later so people are talking about hidden marks much more now because the next study I did for NUS was about lad culture Um, and I know you had a question about lad culture didn't you Um, I just wanted to ask you what you know just to ground us in conversation what mm. lad culture is what is it yeah I mean I I don't think I know anymore (laughs) so I mean it's one of those things I mean at the time when we researched it we defined it as a set of behaviors um, engaged in mostly by men mostly by white men of more privileged social classes which involved kind of competitive behaviors um, so trying to outdo each other in various different ways and one of the ways they try to outdo each other is how sexist can you be how racist can you be how homophobic can you be um how much can you push the boundaries um so we did a study of um again not a prevalence study but myself and isabel young did a a qualitative study so that's about kind of doing interviews and focus groups with um 40 women um in different universities in england and Scotland, I believe, um, about just their experiences of these types of behaviours. So we um, explored their um, kind of how they engaged with this kind of sexism, how it made them feel, what they felt about the implications of this. And one of our Mm. conclusions was that lad culture, some of the behaviours that are defined as being just laddie are actually sexual harassment. Um, Some of them could be construed as sexual assault if you're talking about unwanted touching. Um, But also Mm. they provide a context that's then quite conducive for more, I want, I'm going to use the word severe, but actually, you know, who's who's to say what, what is less severe really, but um, more severe forms of sexual assault um, and even rape. So, um, and at that point, I think maybe the time was right. I think everyday sexism had just become a thing and there was a lot more discussion in the media about that type of behaviour. So when that report came out and that report was called That's What She Said, um, it really hit the press and there was a lot of press articles on it, which then kind of brought attention back to hidden marks. And it was quite useful for us as well to be able to say, yes, this is just a study of 40 women um, but we know that these behaviours are quite prevalent because if you look at hidden marks we've got 68% of that sample saying they'd experienced these types of behaviours. Hmm. And lad culture is quite a unique British problem I mean I'm going to call it a problem because Mm. you know it is a problem and it it is is quite a unique British issue and uh, like you have the frat 
culture in the US or mm-hmm. you know different forms of university sexual assault or sexual mm-hmm. harassment sexual violence manifesting across mm-hmm. the world but how Eve does teasing and things mm. yes absolutely Eve teasing is a big thing in India so how does yeah. uh, lad culture manifest on university campuses um i think it's a lot through um sports societies so the rugby teams were a big focus of our research but also things like debating societies or drinking societies um and then it manifests in the nightlife as well so whether that nightlife is on campus or off campus um that's generally where those behaviors really take root but actually social media as well um and when we did our study i don't think social media was quite as central um as it appears now so we have the you know the warwick whatsapp rape chat for example um i have a student at the moment who's researching these types of chats which you know she tells me are, are very very common um and lads will say things that they would not say to their female peers on these types of chats um so i think that's how it manifests and what it does is it makes women feel uncomfortable and that's what it's designed to do um so it's a way of marking territory um it's a way of making women feel uncomfortable in particular spaces it's a way of making women feel less than in particular spaces and i don't think it's a coincidence that the worst culprits of this tend to be the white more privileged men it's the kind of bullingdon club ladism the boris johnson ladism you know that kind of thing just because this podcast has an audience that's broader than uh just those who would be familiar with the willingdon club can you just tell us briefly what mm-hmm. it is yeah it was a it was a it was oxford wasn't it um it was a club at oxford which was a kind of members only um drinking society um david cameron was in it um I, boris johnson was probably in it as well um lots of these politicians were part of that club it was it was men only um and it kind of it's that sort of entitled behavior um and the entitlement to be sexist which i think um characterizes those types of organizations yeah and you've looked at how lad culture interacts with rape culture and before i ask you what that interaction is mm-hmm. i want you to tell me how you would define rape culture as an academic looking into it Mhm. I mean first of all I think what I want to say is I don't really like these terms. Um I don't really like the term lad culture anymore. I think that it's very um it's a very broad term and it also kind of operates as both cause and effect. So it's the kind of it's the thing but it's also the explanation of the thing. Um so you kind of see these see these kind of things happening and oh that's lad culture um and it doesn't tell you anything about why um so it doesn't tell you anything about the kinds of class and race privilege that underpins this type of behavior um and the same with rape culture i think i mean actually i think when we say rape culture what we really mean is patriarchy um but rape culture is um a term that i think is quite widely used in the us um and also here which is just about the normalization of rape and sexual assault and sexual violence throughout all of society um so rape culture could be somebody saying well what were you wearing when you tell them that you've been sexually assaulted or harassed for example mm-hmm. it's the idea that men will rape and women's job is is to avoid being raped. Um so it's what Adrian Rich called the kind of penis with a life of its own argument, you know, the idea that male sexuality is this sort of juggernaut and what women have to do is get out of the way and protect themselves. Um so rape culture is also, you know, well were you drunk? You know, did you lead him on? Um that kind of thing. Rape culture is, you know, the use of rape as 
titillation in mm. movies and TV shows, for example. Um, rape culture is jokes about rape that minimise it or use it as a punchline. Um, so again, it's quite broad, which is why I don't really like it either. Um, and I also wonder what's the difference between rape culture and patriarchy. It kind of seems to me to be the same thing. But it doesn't tell us that much about the power structure, because really what we're talking about is structure, not culture. Um, mm. if, I think in both of these things, we're talking about gender as a as a structure. We're talking about class as a structure and race and um, sexual orientation or, or sexuality um, and how those intersect to produce um, forms of vulnerability for some groups and forms of power for others. Mm. And basically, uh, from what you found, is there... Is there a special interaction between rape culture and lad culture and how lad culture is essentially normalized and it's essentially, mm. you know, almost protected? Mm. Yeah, I think in a society which has a rape culture, then laddish behaviors are kind of normalized as being just what boys do, just what young men do. Mm. Um, and then lad culture also feeds rape culture. So it's a kind of a circuit between the two, I suppose. Mm. Um yeah so these cultures sort of i mean obviously rape culture is much broader um mm -hmm. and it refers to a set of social and cultural norms around sexual violence whereas lad culture describes a, a, almost a subculture of behaviors amongst a particular or particular groups of men um but the two of them feed off each other yeah and i want to go back to what you said about not liking these terms and not liking lad mm -hmm. culture as a term in particular because it just doesn't tell you about the issue and you've mm -hmm. talked about that while talking about uh, how social class and lad culture interact and um, you're uh, you've argued that uh, there's a dif distinction in how a working class lad culture manifests and a middle class lad culture would manifest on university campuses. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously this is quite a broad sketch as well. So it, it, mm. it isn't true in every case, but I think there is a difference. Um, most of the studies of lad culture amongst working class boys um, and again it's mostly been attributed to white working class boys um, have been focused on them feeling alienated from the education system so it's kind of being disruptive in class you know um, refusing to concentrate um, or causing trouble in class it's not really been focused on attitudes towards women um, which I mean, I'm sure there are problematic attitudes towards women, but they haven't been the main focus. Whereas with the lad culture that I've studied, which is in universities um, and possibly in lots of our private schools as well, um, has been very much more the preserve of middle class lads. And it's quite interesting that the rugby team is a key focus. And it's also quite interesting that our um, report on lad culture, most of the most of the self-selecting, again, participants were from Russell Group universities. So, um, kind of the, the posher universities, you know, um, in the country where which tend to have a greater proportion of middle class people, which tend to have a greater proportion of white people. And I don't think that is a coincidence. So I think that the working class ladism is sort of a reaction to being alienated. Um, so, you know, you don't care about me, so I'm just going to throw a chair at the teacher anyway. Um, whereas the middle class lad, lad culture, I think, is about feeling alienated. Um, maybe men who, who feel that they have a certain place in society and now there are women in there on their degree courses there are women outperforming them at school there are women teaching them at university um, there are women pushing back on their 
sexist behaviour. Um, and I think that that is a feeling of alienation, but that's not the same as actually being alienated by the class system. Yeah, I, I think that's just so interesting. Um, and you've said that for this middle class feeling of alienation, it's this feeling of being dominated due to a loss of gender, class and race privilege. Yes, um, yes that's revoking, right. Whereas for revoking class, uh, ladism proceeds from being dominated within this education system. So I think that's just so fascinating. I'm also curious mm. about how this interacts with um, international students. I mean, I, I was an international student myself and I studied at Edinburgh mm-hmm. where there was a huge population of international students and, you know, students like us were from all parts of the world and, uh, you know, and, and there's this persistent lad culture. So I'd be very interested in finding if there's, if, uh, if uh, there's any patterns to the interaction there. Yeah, I mean, I think um, from what we've studied, it certainly wasn't, it, w- it was the English students that were doing the lad culture, um, mm-hmm. certainly. I don't think we found much evidence of men from other countries getting involved in it. Not that there isn't sexism in other countries, but it just it just operates differently, doesn't it? Um, and I think that ladism, as you've said, is a peculiarly English thing. Um, I think it involves racism. Um, we certainly found that it involves um, racism as well as misogyny, and sometimes both, you know, obviously at the same time. Um, we did our study back in um, 2013, so pre-Brexit. Um, I would not be at all surprised to find that there's a lot more racism and xenophobia as well um, manifesting in lad culture these days, and that international students are perhaps experiencing it much more directly than they were before as a kind of a direct target um, of this type of behaviour. I mean, of course, there's a lot more just racism and xenophobia generally in universities, mm. um, isn't there? So, or, or more visible racism yeah. and xenophobia. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps lad culture isn't the most important problem anymore um and i do think that gender has been at the top of the agenda for a long time now when we when we talk about universities and equalities and i think that it has it's not that it's a zero-sum game but i think we have focused on gender to the exclusion of race Mm. um and i think that race is a major major problem in our universities so why do you think sexual violence in universities in the uk traditionally it hasn't received Received as much attention as it should why do you think that is um i think a number of reasons really i mean if you go back to the the sort of bullingdon club days you know there's just a sense that these men have a right to do as they please um and the space of the university is a space that was built for them and there were fewer women then at university as well there were probably fewer women certainly fewer women academics fewer women in more senior positions so there wasn't really a dialogue about it like like we have now and I think now with in the more neoliberal the more kind of market-based corporate university um, we just have reputation management so universities are terrified of anything getting out that would stop students from applying Um, so nobody wants to be or nobody wanted to be um, when I started out nobody wanted to be the first to say we've got a problem because Mm -hmm. they were worried that people wouldn't then apply to go to that institution Um, and that took a while to settle I think it is better now. But when Hidden Marks first came out, I sort of naively thought, well, at least now people know that the problem is across the board. So universities will come forward and and kind of say, okay, we're going to deal with this. But it really did take years after Hidden Marks um, for anything to 
be done. And still, even though there's a kind of double reputation management going on now, so lots of universities are coming forward and saying, we've got this great policy, we've got these great initiatives, we've got the, you know, the students union are working on it, we've got these academics working on it to make it good. But then also when something happens, they still cover it up. Um, so it's, um, it's a very odd position to be in, you know, to have your work used to what Sarah Ahmed would say to polish the institution, while at the same time your work is ignored when a problem happens. You also looked at how we can address lad culture and uh, how we can address sexual violence around that. So can you tell me about those solutions? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, um, I don't know. I mean, lots of things have been tried. Um, lots of things have been tried. And I'm, I'm, I imagine some of them are probably working. But I do think that each institution is different um, in its culture, its own culture. Perhaps the demographic of the students is different. Um, the kind of the political culture of the institution is different. So, I mean, there have been lots of different things tried, like consent training, um, which I think in some cases has worked really well and in other cases has just been subject to a lot of backlash. There's been bystander intervention, um, which again, I think has worked quite well in some cases, um, although I have some doubts about bystander intervention in terms of the sort of white knight scenario and who gets to be a bystander and who is more likely to be read as mm. an aggressor. Um, there have been various policies written, but I do think that policies aren't worth the paper they're written on unless you have the right culture in which to implement them. Um, in terms of, I mean, the focus really as well now is on sexual misconduct by staff towards students. So that's really kind of taken over from student on student violence. Um, and there's lots of discussions about how to deal with that, some of which I find a little bit scary. So the idea of making um, the ability for institutions to, pl- to apply for grants um, dependent on whether they have various policies and initiatives in place. I do worry whether that's just going to magnify inequalities between mm-hmm. institutions because the institutions with more resources are going to be able to put fancy things in place and the institutions with less aren't going to be able to keep up and then they won't be able to apply for the grants. And it, you know, it ends up being a bit like the school system, you know, when you're defined as a failing school or what have you. So I do have reservations about some of it. I also have reservations about um, initiatives that make it easier to deal with harassers, but which potentially affect all of our labour rights. Um, especially in this climate where there are so many attacks on universities um, and where universities are trying to manage people out of their jobs for whatever reason. Um, So I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. And I think it's probably going to be different for each institution. Um, And obviously, at a societal level, we need to destroy patriarchy and capitalism. Mm. So, you know, just some small changes need to be made. Um, I think that it would be useful on the staff misconduct side for us to explore ways of having conversations about this, um, ways of dealing with problematic people, um, because at the moment it seems like the option is do nothing or have an incredibly punitive procedure that ends up with that person being fired um, and potentially then just going on to work somewhere else and continuing Mm. the same behaviour. So I'm not sure. I don't have any of the answers, really. Mm, And that's something I want to ask you about, because... Um, I mean, hearing you talk and I've listened to interviews of you before and it, I feel like I'm getting richer just listening to you talk. And uh, one thing that I've picked up on is that you aren't afraid to say that, hey, this is what I used to think 
15 years ago or 10 years ago and I changed my mind about this or uh, this is this is something that I don't think or research on or you know look at anymore because I've realized I've that's something that I don't believe in anymore and I feel like for public intellectuals and for academics or in the public eye there's this perceived pressure that oh you're the one who has all the answers and you're the one who has all the solutions so um how can you be wrong or how can you say you're wrong so I want to ask you about that have you have you felt that pressure or do you think that's just something that's a construct um I haven't felt it personally um but I think that I'm not invested in my identity as an academic as in perhaps the same way as others are I mean I don't come from an academic family um I'm the only person in my family who's ever been an academic um so I come from a kind of different class background from other academics and I think in some ways that's been really freeing um because it's not I love my work and I identify with it in that way, but I don't have an identity as an academic. So for me, saying I was wrong is actually quite liberating. And I think that we all get it wrong. And if you're not getting it wrong sometimes, then perhaps you're not um, taking enough risks with your thinking. But also, if you're not getting things wrong, or if you're not willing to admit when you get things wrong, then you're not growing. And I do, I mean, so I do think for me, it's been fine to say that, but I do see other people kind of painting themselves into a bit of a corner um, with some of their views and then not being able to get out of it Um, especially people that end up developing quite reactionary views Mm. and we have got quite a lot of academics in that position at the moment you know then you can't admit that you were wrong because you've got you know 30,000 Twitter followers who would kind of come after you Um, and also holding that view is what has given you your platform in the first place Um, whereas I don't really feel like I've built my platform off of particular views Um, Mm. I, I just kind Kind of say what I, I tell my truth at the time and I've got lots of things wrong I mean my my 2014 book the politics of the body the chapter on sex work in that book I was so wrong I was so wrong about a lot of things in that chapter and I'm very very happy to admit it um, and I would write a completely different thing now um, lad culture you know I'm not convinced that that is the right concept at all um, I mean the other thing I don't understand is why people don't get bored mm. if you're just working with the same set of ideas or the same concept or the same topic for your whole career I mean I you know I think that's amazing in some ways and maybe you do end up getting deeper but I think you can also end up getting bored Mm. just kind of flogging the same horse all the time Mm. um So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't see a problem with it. And I think I will always get things wrong. And I think that it's how you respond to that. That's how you grow. And I also think that the pressure to give solutions, I, I'm not a fan of theory that's not grounded in real life. But I also think that the pressure to offer a solution can sometimes be a way of shutting down kind of radical thought or critical thought in quite problematic ways. It's like, well, what's your solution then when you've just raised um, a number of important critical questions? And Marianne Carver in the US, who I am just totally in love with intellectually, um, always says that, you know, it's not necessarily our job to offer solutions. So she's a prison abolitionist. You know, we don't know what's going to replace prisons if we manage to, to end the criminal punishment system. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't critique it. It shouldn't mean, doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to think about alternatives we might build. But feeling the pressure to have all the answers, you can just be stymied into doing nothing mm-hmm. then or sticking with the state. Status quo, I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's very I, freeing to say. 
Yeah, I mean, for all of us, like I, I feel like for myself as well, I'm very politically engaged and I'm always talking to my friends about stuff. And even for me to realize that I don't always have to be right in debates, I don't always have to win mm-hmm. has been very liberating, you yeah. know. And um, so I'm trying to uh, action that when I whenever I talk to friends about this stuff. And it's just you learn so much more that mm-hmm. way. But I think what you've said is so important to emphasize, especially in a time where intellectuals, like you said, are public figures and they have this sort of vague expertise that they spin into getting questions uh, getting solutions for large swathes of people and you know often these solutions tend to be homophobic or transphobic or racist and Mm. um thank you for thank you for saying that i mean i think you've hit the nail on the head as well when you use the word winning um because i think too often we see it as about winning an argument and actually it's not about winning an argument it's about finding a better way um and finding a better Mm. way doesn't necessarily require you to win the argument i also think the other dangerous thing it um which has come out of what you've just said that sparked it off in my head is some of these all-purpose intellectuals who do go on yeah. Newsnight or go in the media and they sound off about issues that they don't really know much about and I've never been one to do that I will I will always say no to a media request if it's something that I don't really really know about not because I'm worried about getting it wrong necessarily but I think there's a difference between getting it wrong but be- but trying really hard and knowing a lot about something and getting it wrong because you're just talking off the top of your head with no knowledge. Um, And the second Mm. one of those, I don't want to do. Um, I would far rather they have a genuine expert to tell them. Yeah, and I think this this twisting of academic axioms just completely moving um axioms around for just for the convenience of your argument Mm. it's just extremely dangerous and i think this is a great place to go on to political whiteness because that is also something that you've researched so what is political whiteness okay so political whiteness it's not a term that i invented um so other people have used it before but i think i use it slightly differently so i'm talking about a kind of mode of operation in politics, which is normally engaged in by white people, but it doesn't necessarily have to be white people because it's a kind of mode of doing things. In relation to sort of sexual violence, it has certain narratives. So sexual violence is um, the fault of bad men. Um, who need to be punished, for example. And shaming and punishment is the way to rid the world of sexual violence. So political whiteness tends to be quite individualistic. It tends to see problems in individual terms rather than structural terms. And it also tends to have a focus on um, power and punishment. Um, It also tends to be quite narcissistic. So the idea that white people's experiences can stand for all people's experiences. Um, And you see that especially, I think, in white feminism, where white women become women. Um, So I've I've been thinking about that quite a lot recently. I think since Me Too really started to take shape, I kind of, I felt very uncomfortable with it. And I was thinking, why? Why does this bother me? Um, what's, what's not sitting right about this? And um, came around to the idea that it was, it was the whiteness of Me Too that was the problem. Hmm. You know, that's very interesting because when I was uh, reading your Uh, articles about this and I was listening to you talk about this it was you know I was thinking a lot because I have experienced I mean I've lived in the UK so I've sort of been exposed to me too there but then also me too broke in India last year And that was really transformative for me personally, because, you know, I've never in my wildest dreams when I was growing up, I could imagine that my society would talk about sexual violence, that it would go 
into the mainstream that conversation and it's sort of helped me look at my experiences and say oh this was wrong and that's the personal impact it's had on me but when i look at things that you're saying about oh this is a very um, this this movement is for certain people i absolutely agree because mm. it, it, it is available to certain women even in india i mean i can extrapolate that and i don't know how solid that would be but i can see that you know even in india people who work women who work in as house helps for example no one cares if they're saying me too or mm. caste or class there big this big income inequalities in india and uh, that directly seeps into me too so i think that argument is really interesting that me too has been a very privileged battleground in a sense mm. yeah yeah i think that's right i have actually a couple of phd students just started this september um both of whom are working on one is working especially on me too in india um she's a journalist who went on the dignity march um i don't know whether you um were aware mm. of that march it was a march of um all kinds of marginalized survivors really um so dalit women women from rural areas mm. um disabled women um hijras as well um who marched a, a long long way um to draw attention to their cause um and i have another phd student working on street harassment in india as well um and mm. i think that both of them have really been taken by that idea of political whiteness and have kind of felt that maybe it would apply to the indian context even though we're not talking about white people we're still we're still talking about relations of privilege um yeah and caste obviously yeah absolutely i was thinking about that as like political i don't know casteness or yes. <laughs> political some classism something of that sort yeah and this is what brings me to your book you've a book out early next year so tell us about your book okay well it's um it's called me not you which is a play on me too obviously um and it is just about that political whiteness so the political whiteness of mainstream feminism so i talk about me too i talk about the women's march but i also talk about the history of white feminism um kind of going back to the suffragettes um through the kind of 1970s and 80s especially radical feminism because that's where sexual violence tended to be dealt with most um through the slut walks you know up to the women's march and me too um and just really thinking about um who is included and who isn't and, and also what that does to the strategies um so i focus on the strategy of naming and shaming which was a big part of me too obviously um and the way that that movement has used the media what i call the outrage media um in various ways and obviously naming and shaming sometimes works but what does that mean um what are the implications of that and i kind of theorize it in institutions in a way as a form of nimbyism um which is a very english word it's not in my backyard um so we get rid of these bad men from our institutions but where do they go next um and even mm. if we get rid of them from academia entirely where do they go next so they they need to work to live right everybody needs to work to live um will they get jobs in sectors where women are less privileged have less employment rights will they continue the same kinds of behaviors or will they behave worse because they're angry now um and i don't think i'm arguing that we need to embrace these men and protect them and keep them but i'm just saying there's a there's a flaw in that strategy um i also kind of explore the the idea of women's anger which has been a big thing since the women's march you know the idea that women's anger is a positive force in society um a positive force for change but i guess i'm asking who's anger who is allowed to be angry and who is too angry um and also um what comes with that anger and i 
think, unfortunately, with white feminist anger, there's often a focus on infliction with it. So inflicting punishment, inflicting um, exclusion, um, and what kinds of systems is that propping up? Um, So I'm not concerned about these men. I'm concerned about what are we doing when we invoke the criminal punishment system, for example, or or what are we doing when we say it should be easier to fire academics? Who's going to suffer because of that? It's probably not going to be these very privileged men who we're naming and shaming in the media. Um, And then at the kind of thicker end of the wedge, the thickest end of the wedge, I guess, I talk about how that political whiteness can lead to hatred of sex workers and transphobia. So the sort of refusal of intersectionality leads to a policing of the borders of who can be a woman and who isn't allowed to be a woman. Um, There's a kind of attachment to victimhood that goes with that, which means that um, everybody else becomes the enemy. So sex workers become kind of handmaidens of the patriarchy who are exposing other women to abuse. Trans women become predatory men. Um, And ultimately, that's a sort of settler colonial mentality, which is about kind of the right sort of bodies, the right sort of way to earn a living, the right sort of way to have sex, the right sort of way to be a man or be a woman. Slotting people into categories, categories that are functional for the economy and categories that don't challenge the status quo. So I guess what I'm saying is political whiteness is a problem. um, And in the mainstream, it tends to just prop up the status quo. So it's about a seat at the table rather than, um, you know, destroying the table. But at the extremes, it does take us to some quite dangerous places. And some of these anti-trans feminists in particular have been associating with the far right, um, the religious right, the far right. um, And there have been kind of ideological associations, but there's also financial links. You know, I mean, we're talking about practical, tangible links between these groups who are united by their shared hatred of trans people. So some of these feminists have been associating with the most horrible anti-woman, anti-abortion, anti-lesbian groups because they have a shared hatred of trans people. Um, So Mm. yeah, that's where political whiteness ends up. Yeah. And the, the title is Me Not You, The Problem With Mainstream Feminism. And, you know, I, I am usually quite skeptical of podcast titles. What is the problem with mainstream feminism or has Me Too gone too far? Yeah. Because they usually come from these right-wing conservative pundits who don't want women to have rights and they're just they're wrapping a bow around this argument and making it look very um, intellectual and um, you know modern they're essentially just harboring sexist ideas through these questions but mm-hmm. I mean having read your work and having read your research and having heard you talk I think I think these are really important questions that we as a movement need to look at mm, and it is a risk I mean in some places I'm traveling quite close to the back Backlash, you know, mm-hmm. because some of the you you come from a different place, but some of the questions that you end up asking sound the same. And I think in such a polarized world, any attempt to kind of look at the nuances of an issue can risk giving ammunition to the other side. Um, but I hope that I've been clear that what I'm saying is not that Harvey Weinstein deserves protection, um, and not that universities should not deal with sexual harassers, but that we need to be very mindful of the direction of our politics, you know, um, where where will this end up? Where will this take us? Who 
are the ultimate beneficiaries of this and who might suffer. Um, and sometimes when white feminists do things that will only benefit them, other people end up suffering. So I, I hope that I've managed to communicate that in the book. But you can tell me when you read it. I'll send you a copy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's very exciting. Yeah. So you've been looking at this research for years and you've spent so much time looking at these questions around sexual violence. And one thing I like to ask all my guests is the emotional cost of doing this research and, you know, spending your day-to-day -day life for years looking at sexual violence, which is not a pleasant topic to be studying, but I guess that's why we do it. But is there an emotional cost to your work? Yes, there is an emotional cost um, because I'm a survivor myself. So you are kind of reliving parts of your trauma all the time. Um, there's also emo an emotional cost to being so openly trans inclusive and sex worker inclusive. I get a lot of abuse from other feminists and that actually hurts more um, and that has caused me more emotional upset than going over the sexual violence um, because it just hurts that these women who um, should be sisters are really not and, and it hurts to be hated so much by people that you've never even met. Um, so there is an emotional cost. Um, I have therapy. <laughs> I've been in therapy for 20 years. Um, it's very good. I recommend it if you get the right therapist. Um, so I I have that outlet. I have loads of supportive friends. I have a really supportive partner. I have two wonderful children who can take my mind off it as well. So I do all the right things. Um, but sometimes I do think, oh, I just need a break. And I do also get a lot of requests from survivors um, and people who are dealing with difficult things in their working lives or in their studies. Um, and sometimes I have to disappoint people. Um, sometimes I can't fix it all for them. Um, and sometimes Sometimes I have to just say I'm I'm over capacity. I can't do this, um, and that's really hard as well because you don't want to dis disappoint anyone. Um, and of course, each individual person doesn't know all of the other things that you're having to deal with. So from their experience, it's well, well, I wrote to Alison Phipps and she didn't do anything. Um, so that is really really difficult to know that there are people who are very disappointed in you, who are probably telling other people that they're very disappointed in you, um, and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, so. So that's tough too and I've had to and I'm still not comfortable with it but I've had to try to get more comfortable with disappointing people sometimes but having said all that it's also it's kind of it's not about me either so I don't want to make too much about my own trauma and my own kind of emotions in this because I could choose not to do it you know I, I do choose mm -hmm. to do it um, I could choose to do something else I'm incredibly privileged to be able to do this work um, you know it's not like I'm working on a zero hours contract under horrific conditions and getting sexually harassed by my boss um, and not making enough money to be able to feed my kids so I have an incredibly privileged life um, and um, this is something that I just have to keep working on. I think that's really really admirable. I want to pick up on what you said about this division in the broader feminist movement and this, this sort of transphobic anti-sex worker sentiment and I want to ask you, do you think there's there's a way forward in which transphobia or sex worker phobia within this movement can be tackled? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, mm. the younger people give me hope because I think the transphobia and the anti-sex work um, prejudice or anti-sex worker prejudice, sorry. I mean, I think, you know, most of the sex workers that I'm friends with would agree that the sex industry is not a good thing. Um, but it's the prejudice against sex workers. Mm. I think that that 
that is usually white women of a certain age and a certain class background. Um, and I think that there's a kind of, there's a politics of resentment there. It's sort of weird. There's a, a kind of desire to claim all the victimhood for themselves, which I don't see in the younger generations. And I think that these, I mean, let's not kind of paper over it. A lot of these women have had really difficult lives and they've had to fight really hard to get where they are. Yeah. And a lot of them have been um, active in the feminist movement for decades and we should be grateful to them for all of the things that they've done. Um, yeah. But I think that it's um, it's now turned into something else for some of them. Um, I do think that they're in a minority, but I also think that they're a very vocal minority and because of the very right-wing political context at the moment, they are gaining a lot of power um, that they didn't necessarily have before when things were not quite as right-wing as they are now. Um, if the broader context shifts or when the broader context shifts, that will also shift as well. Um, but I do think that younger people also see gender very differently from what even people of my age do. Um, I think they have much more fluid understandings of gender and sexuality. And I think that automatically leads to much more trans-inclusive viewpoints. So I have hope for the future, but I'm not sure what can be done now because it feels so polarised. Um, social media doesn't help either, um, but it does feel so polarised and it almost feels like there's two different worldviews on display mm -hmm. here, you know, that we can't even talk to each other because we come from such different starting points. Um, and the, I mean, I think the biggest difference is the intersectionality versus the lack of intersectionality. Um, and I think that that can be really hard to talk across um, on all kinds of issues and not just trans issues. So I don't, yeah, I don't know what can be done at the moment. Um, I'm, I think I'm focusing on having positive conversations with people that want to, um, you know, trying to lift up the voices of, of trans people, sex workers, you know, women of colour, women who fit all of those categories. Um, in the hope that people who don't know much about the issues might learn something. I think that's the focus of my book. It's targeted at people who haven't maybe haven't quite made up their mind, maybe white feminists who kind of are feeling a bit, oh, I'm not really sure, you know, what my feminist act activism should be, you know, um, not the ones that have already decided that trans women are really men who want to rape people. I mean, I think there's no point in having a conversation there. Mm, yeah, you've said that you come from a conservative family and going from that to now advocating or well not advocating for it but you believe that sexual violence and capitalism are interlinked and uh, capitalism is a destructive force how does that happen um <laughs> i've always been awkward i've always been <laughs> contrary um i think that you know i think that <laughs> that's partly why um which is why i'm always very careful not to impose my own politics on my children because i don't want them to become tories in order to rebel against me um so I think that's part of it I've always thought for myself um I left home at 16 um which probably also kind of made a difference um but also I think coming out um as a lesbian quite early in life so you know when I was 18 19 I had um a period of time where I really had to reevaluate my history and the kinds of politics that I wanted 
to be embodying in my life. Um, I was quite a late bloomer politically because we don't talk about, I mean, my, my family are quite conservative, but they don't talk about politics. Um, so until I went to university, really, I wasn't that politically aware. Um, and I think it's just been a process of learning and I'm still learning. I'll never be done learning about it. Um, and I think in some ways, I, you know, I've come to intersectionality quite late, really. I wasn't, um, I didn't engage with it much during my studies, during my PhD. You know, it's really been um, something that I've I've engaged with as I've become more expansive in my thinking and kind of thought, well, what, you know, what's going on here? Um, so I guess that's how it happens. Um, I'm a bit of a willful child, you know. Um, I'm not afraid to say that I'm wrong, but I also like to think differently and I don't just follow the herd, um, mm. which doesn't make me many friends sometimes, but um, that's how it goes. But it makes you yeah. your own friend, which is the most important thing, right? Yeah, that's right. And I guess I've always felt different as well. You know, I've always been different, um, you know, so I think that gives you a certain view of the world um, as well which, you know, that doesn't mean I know what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes, but I think I've always felt uneasy with the sort of the mainstream of, of, of feminist thought, certainly. Mm, I really want to keep talking more, but I, I'm aware that, you know, we've run out of time. And finally, I want to ask you, what does future research look like for you? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, some of it's, if, if you're talking about funded research, I guess some of it is dependent on what the opportunities are. But I would really like to explore how to have different conversations in universities universities, different ways of dealing with problematic behaviour. Um, it doesn't just have to be sexual harassment, it could be other things as well. So what are the spaces between ignoring it or having an incredibly punitive response? You know, what's the space between enabling and excluding? Um, and where could that kind of thing work? Um, you know, which doesn't mean, again, that I think we should we should not exclude some people, because sometimes refusing to exclude a harasser is a de facto way of excluding the person who's experiencing the harassment. But I do think there's a big gap there's a big gap of kind of um, effective procedure there's also a big gap of capacity in these institutions to have these conversations um, and especially the behaviors that might be sort of more everyday types of low-level things um, that we could perhaps support people to behave differently and if we cast the net a bit wider than sexual harassment if we cast the net to you know racism classism homophobia you know whatever then very few of us can say we haven't done something problematic um in the workplace. So I think that it is a case of, you know, maybe developing more connections, maybe using transformative justice approaches a little bit more, um, maybe starting with smaller teams and kind of exploring different ways of being together. Um, and then we could perhaps widen that out. Um, so I think that's ideally where I'd like to go next with my funded research. Um, and I have got another academic monograph in development, which is um, a kind of extended version of the me, not you. Um, but that will be a few years in coming. And I'm not quite sure what will be the main focus of that, because I now feel like I've said quite a lot of the things I wanted to say um, in the in the more sort of general book. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Well, thank you, Alison. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me and thank you for sharing your experiences and your views. I'm really, really excited to uh, read your book. But really, thank you for all the work that you've been doing. Oh, thank you so much. And your questions were brilliant. So um, yes, I'll send you a copy of the book if you'd like one. I'd love one. I love books and I've never been sent a free book before. So that's very oh, well. exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that was Dr. Alison Phipps and 
thank you so much for tuning in let me know what you think of this episode and of the podcast in general we're out every sunday so we've got another episode next sunday tune in then and you can follow us on twitter facebook and you can write to us we've got an email address and you can also leave a review if you have any thoughts on this episode but please do send any feedback that you have it really helps me improve and know what i can do better so thank you so much and we've also got links to organizations that support survivors and victims of sexual violence so please check those in the podcast description if you think you'd need them and that's about it thank you so much for tuning in i am asmita and this is talking research